morning. Someone said tired. Anybody tired this morning? Let's just admit it in front of God and everyone. Do you see how many hands go up? This is a product of our overpaced society right here, okay? Tired, exhausted, drained, all the things. Do you remember when people were bored? Like, do you remember the days when people were actually bored? I feel like that was such a long time ago. Um, I don't know. No one is bored these days, but uh, it is good to see you. I am excited about our trunk retreat tonight. I'm curious to see who is going to have the best trunk. Um, I'm very uh, much anticipating some creativity for our time together um, this evening. Um, Janika, thank you so much for reading the scripture and for your prayer. That was, uh, was fantastic. Last week, we kicked off a brand new teaching series called Planted. And in this planted teaching series, we are looking at the book of Daniel, which you might be confused as to why we just read a passage from Jeremiah, but you will see in a bit uh, why we're connecting the two. But in the book of Daniel, through this planted teaching series, we are asking the question, what does it look like for us to live faithfully while in Babylon? What did it look like for Daniel and his friends to live faithfully while in Babylonian exile? Daniel and his friends, along with a couple other thousand, were exiled out of Israel and taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. So about 600 years prior to Jesus, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire come in and they take captive these individuals from Israel, and they become exiles, where they are taken from their home. And the idea of exile is to not be at home, to be out of your home place. And the first round of captives, there are a handful of young, handsome, bright, intelligent uh, young men, one of which his name is Daniel. And there are three more um, men that are chosen out of the line of David from nobility, from the royal family, from positions of influence in Israel. And their names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And last week, we uh, used Gavin as a prop, as a representative of Daniel, given the fact that Daniel and these three other young men were no older than 15 years old, maybe 16, potentially even 13 years old, Um, but they were young, bright, young men, full of intelligence and potential. And they are indoctrinated or introduced to all that Babylonian culture has to offer. And Nebuchadnezzar begins enculturating them through literature, through language, and through food. And so we began this teaching series last week by just looking at the first chapter um, with a high-level question of what does it look like to live faithfully while in Babylon? What does it mean to live with resolve and conviction in a culture of compromise? And we're using this descriptive blueprint found in the ancient story of Daniel and his friends. Now, as a reminder for all of us, the city of Babylon 
was the zenith of human civilization in the ancient world. In ancient Mesopotamia, it was the Mecca of the world uh, in terms of size, in terms of culture, in terms of wealth, in terms of technological advancement. And in Babylon, there was roughly 200,000 people. However, Babylon was only four square miles to put that into perspective, that would be like cramming 200,000 people into Jamestown. Okay? How many have been to Jamestown? Southern Roots, anybody? Southern Roots restaurant, anybody? Yeah, nope. It's amazing. Go check it out, okay? This is a blessing to you right now. Um, but if you go to Southern Roots, you're in Jamestown, and it's, it's roughly three or four square miles. So imagine cramming 200,000 people into Jamestown, and you would get it chance to see what Babylon was like. Or uh, for us in Greensboro, it would be like Greensboro having a population of 6.8 million people. Now, uh, Babylon at this period of time was double the size of New York City in population density. So just think about the density of NYC. Let's talk to Sterling and Claudia. They can tell you all about it. They just moved from Manhattan back in the spring. Imagine NYC, but double the density. And that would have been what it was like to live in ancient Babylon. I have a picture of ancient ruins. You can see um, if you were to go to Iraq right now, because ancient Babylon was located about 60 miles southwest of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, and you can go and see these ancient ruins. Now, you might think, well, that's nothing impressive. We're talking about a city that's a few thousand years old here. Um, and so you can actually go back, and they're doing some reconstruction. You can see in the background trying to uh, reconstruct ancient Babylon. This was a city that was built on human ingenuity and advancement, but apart from submission to Yahweh, apart from submission to God. The origins of Babylon are found in Genesis chapter 11 and the building of the Tower of Babel. Babel and Babylon are interchangeable in the Old Testament. And the word Babel means, if you did not know, confusion or chaos. And the result of Genesis 11 is that there are a multiplicity of languages that come out of the uh, Babel story. And even now, there's actually a, a new language app you can download on your phone to learn new languages. And guess what it's called? Babel. I mean, come on, right? Ancient Babylon is the birthplace, so to speak, of, of all these different languages. But it means, in particular, confusion and chaos. Why? Because when we as humans seek advancement apart from God and apart from submission to God's presence, when we seek progress without presence, we end up with confusion and chaos. And we can even see with that ancient paradigm its influence on us in the modern era. So this is where they find themselves. Babylonians wanted a society where the separation between God and humanity was blurred. The separation between the two was blurred. Under the mantra of let us make a name for ourselves. We find that impetus in Genesis chapter 11. Let us make a name for ourselves. Sounds very similar, I think, to us in the modern West, in the United States. They wanted progress, as I said, without presence. 
or they wanted the kingdom of God without God at the center. And do you know what river happened to run through ancient Babylon? Euphrates. Do you know where else we find the Euphrates River? In Eden. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, in the creation narrative. But Eden, or the place of delight, cannot be recreated apart from the presence of God. It cannot be produced through human ingenuity and advancement. We now, in the modern era, thousands of years ago, now refer to this as secularism, where God is an option among other options, where he is no longer at the center of society. The public life and the center of society is meant to be neutral. It's meant to be rational. It's meant to be unbiased and scientific. Now, the problem with that is that no one is unbiased, um, and there are differing opinions around rationality, and scientific conclusions don't really help us with the why questions. But that is the idea of secularism. We also find ourselves in a moment that is referred to as post-Christianity, where we have um, not simply just gotten past Christianity, so to speak, but that we are seeking the kingdom without the king, that we want to feast on the fruit of Christianity without the commitments required of Christianity. And this describes where we find ourselves. And there's such parallel between Daniel and his friends in Babylon and us now as hopefully resilient disciples living in a modern Babylon, because Babylon becomes an archetype throughout the scriptures describing the city of man, so to speak, in the language of St. Augustine. Humans seeking to usher in a utopian society through education, politics, and technological advancement was the very focus of Babylon and has become the focus of modern secularism. The challenging part to this vision is that the word utopia in its original form means nowhere. If you look up the etymology of the word utopia, it literally means nowhere. But we now find ourselves in a moment that mirrors this very vision. Yet... I think we can all see the fracturing and disorienting results of this vision all around us. We are the very ones who cannot deliver what we promise ourselves. We cannot deliver what we promise. We offer medicine for the very disease upon which it creates. And Daniel and his friends provide a counter paradigm for how we can live in this modern secular world operating under a different narrative or a different story where there is one Lord, one God, one King, one kingdom in which he has a vision, he is in control, and we are made to be representatives or priests, so to speak, of that vision and to walk in intimate obedience to it. And when we do, flourishing is produced or renewal is produced. And they provide a nice descriptive uh, narrative of how to do that. We are, as the uh, ancient historian Arnold Toynbee has said, 
are to be a creative minority. We are to become a creative minority. We introduced that phrase last week for our community. Now, here's a great definition for what we mean when we say a creative minority. This is from John Tyson in his book that's called A Creative Minority, which we have in the bookstore back there. If you would like to purchase, it's very short, it's very helpful. I think it'd be nice for you to read. That being said, here's a definition from the wonderful Australian pastor, John Tyson. Should I speak an Australian accent? Should I try? No, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, mic drop there. Uh, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. This is what we mean when we talk about a creative minority. I think a perfect example of a creative minority that we can look at across the world is the Jewish people. Look at the influence of Jewish people in the world. Did you know dating back 100 years or so, about 20% of Nobel Peace Prize winners have been Jewish? But they've never made up more than 3% of the population. They have a, a, a robust sense of community and tight-knit relationships and family around one commonality and one story. They represent a creative minority. And we now in digital Babylon are to be a creative minority. Now, we traditionally have, as I mentioned last week, had two options for how we engage in society. One is separatism, or to remove ourselves as best we can from society, or syncretism, which is to enmesh ourselves with society. It's God and, or Jesus and. But these two visions fall short of the biblical narrative and the call throughout the scriptures. The sociologist James Davison Hunter gives four rather than three options. So we have separatism, syncretism, or creative minority. But James Davison Hunter in his book, To Change the World, gives four. And here's his four. The first is defense against. I think we can all resonate with this, this vision. Or relevance to. Purity from. Or faithful presence within. Faithful presence within this era mirrors what it means to be a creative minority. But traditionally, it's either defense against or just relevance to or simply purity from. And I think it's helpful for you and I to look at our life script and our rhythm and how we engage in our vision of the good life, so to speak, and ask ourselves, does this look like separatism? Does it look like syncretism? Or Am I practicing what it means to be a creative minority in our moment? Better yet, do I operate under the lens and in the lens of being a faithful presence within society? Here's what Hunter has to say. And Hunter's a sociologist at the University of Virginia. So he's a very, very smart man. And I think this is very helpful for us. He says that as to our spheres of influence, a theology of faithful presence obligates us to do what we are able under the sovereignty of God to shape the patterns of life and work and relationship, that is, the institutions of which our lives are constituted, toward a shalom that seeks the welfare not only of those of the household of God, but of all. 
that power will be wielded is inevitable. But the means of influence and the ends of influence must conform to the exercise of power modeled by Christ. This is what it means to be a faithful presence. This is what it means to be a creative minority in our society. It's not separatism. It's not syncretism. It is allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. That is the vision. That is the call. You need to examine your life and ask yourself, do I have greater allegiance to the tribes and ideologies of our moment or to the everlasting eternal kingdom of heaven? Deeply important for us as we live in Babylon, because here's what happened in the ancient world. Many of the exiles became enmeshed with Babylonian society. And eventually birth what we know as Samaritans. So we have to be very aware of our moment and where we are when it comes to life script and how we are living our life. Now, the words from Hunter here sound so very similar to the words of the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 29. Do they not? Let's go back and read these few verses again. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Now, look at the centrality of Yahweh, the centrality of the God of Israel here. To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem, 1,600 miles to Babylon. Here's the instruction. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity or the shalom or the wholeness of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This letter in Jeremiah 29 specifically, is important because it would have provided instruction for Daniel and his friends in how to actually be what we now call a creative minority or how to be a faithful presence in Babylon. Jeremiah, as a mouthpiece of the one true Lord, is calling all of those in exile, which were a few thousand, to engage Babylon by living, building, working, eating, increasing, and seeking the flourishing of the city. That's his instruction from the Lord. Here's how I want you to live amongst these people. Don't separate yourself from and don't become like, but integrate yourselves in a distinguished way and become a creative minority, you might say. Now, the Old Testament scholar John Goldingay has this to say about this call from Jeremiah chapter 29. People aren't being urged to seek the welfare of their own city, but to commit themselves to a city where they don't belong and that they think they'll soon leave. I think there is a prophetic call in Jeremiah 29, even for us in this moment and in this specific city in which we find ourselves in. 
that is deeply transient. Many of you find yourselves in Greensboro for a season, but are you committed to it? Are you committed to the welfare of the city? Are you seeking the peace and prosperity of Greensboro while you're here? There are too many people I think I speak to who are always looking to that next place. I'm trying to get there, and this is my stepping stone. But the way of living in exile, the way of being a creative minority, is to commit yourself to where you are now and be faithful within it. This was their calling. Not only should they have, as we discussed last week, a rooted identity under the God of Israel, as well as resolve not to compromise, but they should be a redemptive influence from within. From within. So today, we're going to spend some time looking at what does it mean to be a redemptive influence in Babylon? Now, this influence and participation does not mean compromise. It does not mean compromise. Many of us, honestly, as believers, have lost our prophetic voice in society because we look too much like it. Many of us have lost our prophetic voice in society because we look too much like it. We aren't strange enough. We aren't different enough. We aren't unique enough. We actually look like the rest of society. We just happen to attend a social gathering on Sundays we call church. We we mirror the culture that we find ourselves in. But if we're honest and look at the way of Jesus, and I was talking to someone about this this past week, Jesus said and did some very weird things. Like, let's be honest, the dude's kind of weird right? We aren't weird enough. Or we're just afraid of being weird. But I'm kind of like, that's what we've done for 2,000 years. The people of God are distinct. And we've lost our prophetic voice, often because we have compromised. But participation does not mean compromise, because sometimes non-participation is the highest form of participation. And we saw this in Daniel chapter 1, where he turns down the food from the king's table as an act of non-participation. He's saying, I'm not going to participate. And by him doing that, he is participating. But he's showing an alternative vision in doing so. It was a potent move by Daniel. Sometimes to love the culture, you have to disobey it. Sometimes for us to seek the the healing of our society, we have to disobey the norms of society. We have to go against the tide. We have to stand out. We have to be unique. Honestly, if people in your workplace don't know you're a believer, I don't know if you're operating as a creative minority. Do they know you're a believer? Are you distinct enough? Are you weird enough? Honestly. This all happens from within society, but what we do is we choose not to follow the trend or the majority, and that can be deeply impactful for those we find ourselves in and around. In Jeremiah's letter here, what stands out to me specifically is the importance of work and vocation in this instruction. Work and vocation. 
He says, plant gardens, hence the planted teaching series, okay? And eat what they produce. In other words, work, create, build, and contribute to the local economy. This mirrors Genesis chapter 1 and what's called the cultural mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to rule and subdue the earth, to cultivate human flourishing. I was deeply struck by this this notion here of participating through work and vocation and in the local economy. And if we, as the people of God, want to see the kingdom of God take root, we must come to the realization that we don't change culture. We make it. You don't just change culture, you make it. Culture is fluid. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's it's ever-moving. And as I said last week, Christian is not an adjective, but a noun. So anytime you label something as Christian, it's grammatically incorrect. You either are Christian or you're not. And I use the, 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 or I mentioned last week, I should say, I use the metaphor, you might, you might, um, you might say that we often say that, that the U.S. is a Christian nation or has been, and that's false. Christian is not an adjective. There are two different places in the the scriptures. Exile or the promised land. In fact, many Jews today still believe they're in exile. And they'll continue to be in exile under the Roman Empire pretty soon. We are not in the promised land, friends. We are in a modern day Babylon. And we have to be aware of this idea that we don't simply change the culture to become Christian. We as Christians make culture. We take the raw materials of society and create beauty that reflects and gives God glory. This is the nature of the call of the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1. And we have a call by default to faithfully manage these raw materials and the gifts that we all have, all the talents that we have been given to reflect the glory and goodness of the one true God. Makoto Fujimura, who's a Japanese artist, says that culture is not a territory to be won or lost, but a resource we are called to steward with care. Culture is a garden to be cultivated. The very idea of culture means to cultivate. It's where we get the notion of agriculture, to get our hands in the ground. We are to cultivate it. Amy Sherman, who um, got her PhD in uh, international economic development from UVA, she's got some great resources um, that I would encourage you guys to check out, calls this posture vocational stewardship. And we will soon see how Daniel operates under this notion given his role in Babylonian political life. Faithful presence and redemptive influence requires stewarding your vocation, your job, your work, your art, your household, and even your neighborhood. But it especially requires stewarding your work, what you put your mind and your heart and your hands to every day. Majority of you all spend at least 40 plus hours a week 
in the workplace? How are you stewarding that redemptively? No matter if you're a teacher, you're a firefighter, you're a social worker, you're a nurse, or whatever it may be, or you're a student, whatever it is, how are you stewarding that faithfully as a redemptive representative of the kingdom of God? Here's how she defines vocational stewardship. She defines it as the strategic, intentional deployment of all dimensions of our vocational power to advance, and I love this, foretastes of the kingdom of God. How in your workplace are you able to reach into the future and get a foretaste of that and bring it back into the present? How are you able to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and think to myself, hmm, how do we cultivate what God intended in my discipline or my industry or my vocation redemptively. Because last I checked, Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over the finance industry. He's Lord over medical industry. He's Lord over education. He's certainly Lord over all government. He's Lord over the arts. He's Lord over entertainment. He is Lord over the welfare system. He's Lord over every facet of our society. But how do we steward the place we find ourselves in in order to give a foretaste of the redemptive and renewing power of the kingdom of God? This is what vocational stewardship is all about. And there are seven dimensions of vocational power, according to Sherman, that I think is very helpful for us. And we all have some of these, if not all. The first is expertise or knowledge. A lot of you have an education or you have some sort of expertise or knowledge. Some of you know some things that none of, none of us know. Like you've spent some time in some very niche fields and you've got some serious education. Okay, go talk to Jordan Albritton. He's got a PhD. He's the smartest one in the room. Okay, expertise, knowledge, education. All right, Natalie Haas just finished PA school. Go talk to her about the medical field. Okay, I'm just saying we got some people with knowledge. All right, platform. All of you have some sort of platform, small or large. You have a platform. You also have networks. Social networks, business networks, relational networks. All of you have some sort of influence. You don't have to be a director. You don't have to be a manager. You have some sort of influence in your role. You have position, different types of position, all in the room in different disciplines. There are various skills that exist. You have certain skills that I don't have, as well as a reputation if I talk to some of your colleagues and coworkers or fellow students or professors and I ask them, hey, tell me about so-and-so, what's their like reputation? I'd be curious to know. And what they say, would it reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Or are they like, honestly, they are hard to work with. I've been trying to get rid of them for months. I can't. I've been trying, but I can't. And some of you, honestly, you don't stay in a job long enough to make an impact. You bounce. My wife works in recruiting, and she sees people who are in jobs a couple months, a couple months, a couple months, a couple months. But you got to be committed to the people in the place of where you are and recognizing you're a part of God's redemptive plan in that discipline. It matters. 
Sherman says, every faithful act of service, every honest labor to make the world a better place, which seemed to have been forever lost and forgotten in the rubble of history, will be seen on that day at the final resurrection to have contributed to the perfect fellowship of God's kingdom. All who are committed All who committed their work in faithfulness to God will be by him raised up to share in the new age and will find that their labor, your labor, my labor was not lost, but that it has found its place in the completed. Vocational stewardship, Jeremiah 29, four through seven, plant gardens. Do you know what that meant? It meant engage in economic trade. It's an agrarian society. Let's engage in trade. Let's engage in commerce. And Daniel now will show us a way to steward our vocation while living in Babylon. Culture, society is renewed incarnationally or from within. Jesus renews society by entering into it from within. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 33, is like yeast. A little bit of yeast into some dough makes it rise. The kingdom of heaven is like a a preservative of salt, or it brings out the flavor of the earth, the God flavor of the earth. We were looking at the Sermon on the Mount this past week in our house church in Matthew chapter 5, talking about what does it mean to be salt and light. A little bit of light goes a long way. A little bit of salt goes a long way. It happens from within. Now, In Daniel chapter 2, Jeremiah's letter was probably written around the same time. So Jeremiah's letter would have come around the time of Daniel chapter 2, at least most scholars believe, when Daniel 2 was written. And in this moment, Daniel has been training for the king's service. Despite his resolve in Daniel 1, he has been given influence in Babylonian society, specifically within the realm of King Nebuchadnezzar and his associates. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is in his second year of reign, and he begins having some very strange and troubling and disturbing dreams. Does anybody have any weird dreams often where you're just like, that was, woof, that was a lot. Go ahead, raise your hand. Everybody needs therapy. Look around. Therapy, yes, Lord, come on. I have the most disturbing dreams sometime. I'm like, what was that? And it's fascinating because throughout the scriptures, at least a hundred times, God speaks through dreams. Now, sometimes we just have, you know, natural dreams. And then sometimes God gives supernatural dreams. In fact, there are a lot of Muslims in the Middle East coming to know Jesus through visions and dreams. Dreams matter. It's not just because you had tacos last night and you got some indigestion and you're like, oh, that was a long night of some rough dreams, right? But Nebuchadnezzar starts not sleeping well, okay? He's struggling to sleep, needs some Benadryl probably to put himself back to bed. And that's because he's having some troubling dreams. And uh, I, I just thought about in this moment, like cueing Aerosmith, you know, dream on, dream on, right? Or um, does anybody remember a song by Nelly in 2010 called Just a Dream? Do you guys remember that little R&B song Nelly tried to do in, in 2010? Okay. I was thinking about her. Okay. Anyway. 
oh, right. <laughs> Some of you are like, I only listen to Fleet Foxes. That's, that's the only band I ever listened to. Or, you know, I, I just listen to Bon Iver. I don't listen to Nelly. Okay. All the hipsters in the room are like, who is Nelly? Anyway. All good. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, he brings out some enchanters, some magicians and some astrologers to help him uh, unpack this dream. And they, he actually wants them to tell him what the dream is, is and what it was all about. And this was a unique distinctive of ancient Babylon or the Chaldean people. Um, having astrologers and enchanters was normative in the ancient world. And interestingly enough, in a few hundred years, from this moment, there are some other astrologers and some other magi who will come from the same place to visit another would-be king. Think about that in the foreshadowing of this moment. These astrologers and magi or enchanters were the public intellectuals of the day. They directed public life, society, and the culture as pseudo-priests or representatives of the gods, getting divine information. Yet, they couldn't figure out the dream. He brings them in, and they can't figure it out. They don't know what the dream is all about, and they start going back and forth, and Nebuchadnezzar is starting to freak out. And then he thinks that they are conspiring against him with misleading information. And keep in mind, Information, especially in the ancient world where a lot of the future is dictated by the interpretation of dreams, is power. Information is power. And there becomes dissension within the political and public sphere of Babylon. And you can read that in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 2. So, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He decides, you know what? I'm king of this place. So I'm killing off all the astrologers and the enchanters and the astrologers because no one can figure out this dream. I'm killing, killing them all off. He actually says he chops them into bits. It's pretty morbid if you ask me. These astrologers had said that no one except the gods could reveal this dream. There was no human on the face of the earth that could understand or comprehend this dream. And they say it was only the gods that could reveal it. Now, look at verse 11 in Daniel chapter 2. These are the astrologers speaking, the enchanters, the magicians. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. Another foreshadowing of a would-be king that we call Emmanuel, God with us. In the message, Eugene Peterson here says, what you're asking is impossible unless some god or goddess should reveal it. And they don't hang around with people like us. Is that so? Daniel will soon prove them wrong. What you are seeing here is anxiety becoming systemic due to a lack of discernment and understanding. Nebuchadnezzar is manic. He's all over the place. And now it is bleeding into the public. 
and there's upheaval in Babylon. He's just killed off the public intellectuals of the whole society. There's upheaval. And dream interpretation was a system for social progress in the ancient world because the future was determined by these dreams and interpretation of these dreams. So this system for social progress is falling and fracturing in Babylon. Sound familiar? But let's see how Daniel and his homies respond to this climate that they find themselves in. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel, listen to this, spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Or with counsel and discernment. Daniel, at age 15 or 16, Gavin, so to speak, becomes a philosopher, one with wisdom, not mere intellect or intelligence, which he had, but with wisdom and discernment. If we want to operate with redemptive influence in our everyday lives, ordinary lives, we must, hear me, become a people of wisdom and discernment. We must become a people of wisdom and discernment or the ability to judge well, the ability to understand thoughtfully. A wisdom in particular that, as we shall see, only comes from God. We must be a people of wisdom. We must have discernment. So what is wisdom? Why not go to the philosopher Dallas Willard to let him tell us? Dallas Willard says, It is agreed on all sides that wisdom in both Western and Eastern philosophy involves the direction of life by relevant knowledge, and thus that it incorporates both a theoretical and a practical element. Wisdom is about direction. Wisdom is about decision-making when you're at a crossroads. When do you usually get wisdom or advice from someone? When there's a decision to be made about a direction in which you are going. This is what it means to have wisdom. Discernment is about direction. And direction is determined by, like we talked about last week and all of the time, story and narrative. Where are we going? What is the end goal? That should influence our decision and our discernment and our wisdom here now in the present. If you want to be a medical doctor and you're trying to make a decision on if you're going to college or not, you got a, you got a decision to make based on direction. Do you not? So this is what it means to have wisdom. And this is why we are experiencing an epidemic of anxiety in our society in some way. Because the story told to us regarding secular Western democracy is that we should be able to produce a utopian society. But that hasn't happened. In fact, the political strategist Francis Fukuyama in 1989 at the end of the Cold War, basically with the fall of communism, made the statement that we are able to now see the future of how society can organize itself. 
We will move into utopian society. Communism's done. Western liberal democracy is the way forward. And then 9-11 happened. And then the internet. And then the digital world. And then globalization. And then the rise of China. And then we then see COVID-19. We see George Floyd. Breonna Taylor. We see Ukraine invaded by Russia. All bad things haven't disappeared since 1989. The 90s were pretty good. Not a ton of world events happened in the 90s. Pretty chill, you know. Um, I don't know about you. I thought the 90s were pretty, pretty chill. Everyone's eating Dunkaroos, hanging out, watching, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Pretty chill time in the 90s. And things have shifted since then. And it's produced anxiety amongst us. Because when our narrative expectations don't match our lived reality, it produces anxiety. When our narrative expectations don't match our lived reality, it produces anxiety. Expecting utopia and not getting it, and even further from it, produces immense worry, confusion, and distress, even depression. We thought education was our means of moving into utopia, so we got educated. More bachelor's degrees than ever before. Here we are. We thought the internet would do it all. Tons of predictions in the 90s about how the internet's going to bring us all together and we're going to ride off into the sunset, baby. Here we are. So then it's like, okay, what now? Oh, that's right, politics. Here we are. In the 1950s, Leslie Newbigin, who was a philosopher and a missiologist, predicted, he said, religion won't go away. It will just become politicized. The religion of politics will take over the day. In the 1950s, he predicted that. Where are we? George Orwell, read him. Right? Look around. Our expectations are not matching our lived reality, and it produces anxiety. Because we think we should be further along than we actually are. Now, some may say, you might talk to some, they'll say it's religion's fault religion's fault that we are where we are and I think okay if that's your conclusion that's fine but religion in the west has been in decline over the last five decades and the quality of life has not increased it's actually decreased in the west so that prophecy falls short society as we see in Babylon and now by itself can't fulfill its own expectations it cannot And there's one issue amongst us right now, I think, and that there is no common narrative. We no longer have common narratives or common stories that we submit ourselves to because everyone is told to write their own story. And when everyone's told to write their own story, there's no collective story. And it produces, as we talked about weeks and weeks ago, a society that is atomized and fractured. Now, That's all philosophy and sociology stuff. But I want us to be aware of where we find ourselves in. 
okay? And Daniel, operating as a redemptive influence in Daniel chapter 2, functions as, as Edward, Edwin Friedman, who was a um, family systems psychologist in the 1990s, calls a non-anxious presence. Daniel functions as a non-anxious presence. Your workplace, your neighbors, your family, they don't need your like crazy high anxiety. They need you to be a non-anxious presence, okay? How can you bring peace to the systems you find yourself in? How can you bring rest to the place that you find yourselves in, okay? Because we live in an anxious world, we are to be a non-anxious presence, now, Proverbs 9.10 tells us what it looks like to walk in wisdom, where it says, the fear or awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is the beginning of wisdom. Here, we see it in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, and Daniel gets that. You want wisdom? Be in awe of the Lord. You want wisdom and understanding? Have reverence for God. And if you want an even deeper wisdom and understanding, you need to know the Holy One. You need to be intimate with the Holy One. Now, in verse 15, Daniel asks the king, king's officer, and seems very calm, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? This caught my attention here. Daniel asks, why? Why? Everyone is fleeing here in Babylon. All the public intellectuals, the astrologers, the enchanters, they're fleeing, moving around. They're getting killed. And he's just like, hey, man, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Asking why, friends and family, is required for exercising wisdom and discernment. If you want to exercise wisdom and discernment, you need to ask why a lot. Why are we where we are? Why are we where we are right now in 2022? Why? Why, why are injustices still present? Why? What's, what's underneath it all? Why do you believe what you believe? Why? Why do you think that is the right thing to do? Why do you think that's the best vision for human flourishing? Better yet, ask, ask a couple people this question. Why are you a self-ascribed conservative? Why are you a self-ascribed progressive? Why? I'm just curious. What, what are you progressing toward? Where'd you get it from? What are you conserving? Where'd it come from? Start asking those questions. Now, some of you might be terrified to do that. That's okay. I understand. But it, un, it, un, it unpacks where we are. Ask why. Start asking why questions. It leads to wisdom and discernment because why inspects the foundation of a narrative. The why question inspects the grounding and foundation of a story. It looks at motivation and reason or purpose. What questions are just about information? But why questions are about wisdom. And some of you are just in your mind thinking about your two or three-year-old or four-year-old always asking, why, daddy? Why? And you're like, can you please stop? Okay, geez, you know? I don't know why, all right? I really don't know why the sky is blue. Somebody else probably does, but I don't know why, okay? And because is not a good answer, dad. All right? It's not a good answer. 
One of the greatest dangers to wisdom in our moment are a couple of statements that we often say, and here are a few of them. That's what I heard. That's what I saw. Or that's what I read. How often do you say these things? It's okay, but it's just information-centric. But are you asking why or what's the narrative? What's underneath it all? What's the story behind it? What is the author or the performer or the person trying to get at ultimately? And Daniel asks why. Now, eventually Daniel goes in. Gavin walks in like a stud and talks with the king as a teenager. This king's killing the wise men. He's killing the magi. He's he's basically ripping them to shreds. And Gavin's like, let me talk to him. What? Like, way to go, Daniel. Way to go, Gavin. I'm proud of you. You're getting a lot of props today, brother. I hope that you're just relishing this moment, man. This is good. All right? In verse 17, it says, Then Daniel, after he talks to the king, and the king's like, okay, go try to figure this thing out. He returns to the house and explains the matter to his friends or his companions, his homies. All right? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urges them to plead for mercy for the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he goes back not only to his friends, but his prayer partners, his companions, his comrades, his compadres. He goes back and he begins seeking God with them. And it's like, we got to plead for mercy. We got to ask. And listen, here's something I want to say. The the scholar, Wendy Witter, who wrote a commentary on Daniel, says this about this moment. God does not do everything that we ask, but there is much he does not do because we do not ask. You got to start asking in your prayer life, man. You got to start pleading with your friends, with your prayer partners. All right? This is a call for all of us. And during the night, in verse 19, it says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel began praising the God of heaven. So Daniel goes, petitions and praises with his companions. These are teenagers seeking God, admonishing God, and worshiping God, and begging God for deliverance. So if we want to exercise redemptive influence in Babylon in our time, couple things that we need. You and I must be in our homes with our community asking and worshiping. Godly wisdom, friends, won't be gained apart from praise and petition with our people. That's a good little one-liner. I'm not going to lie. Like that, that was nice, okay? Praise and petition in private with our people. Some of you got your people, but you don't praise and petition. Some of you praising you know, all the praises go up, all the blessings come down. Okay, that's chance. To re- okay, anyway, I'm trying to make some cultural references here, man. I'm just not cool anymore, I guess. Whatever. Um, some, of you just, some of you just praise, but you don't petition. Some of you need to be on your face petitioning, asking, and pleading for God. And some of us just praise and petition on Sunday morning or at Renew. But in your home, you're just watching Netflix, That's fine, but we need to be on our face with our people in private, praising and petitioning. And then, 
after Daniel gets this vision and dream, which I'm not going to get into. There's a lot of end-time prophecy in that that people like to debate. I'm not getting into that part. You can talk to Cameron Horner about all that if you want to get an understanding of this vision and dream. Listen, we spend too much time focusing on end-time prophecy and not living faithfully in the present. Let me just say, okay? So there's all kinds of debate on the, the dream. But anyway, Daniel becomes a prophetic voice in Babylon after interpreting this dream. And in verse 48, it says this, and this is me wrapping up. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Daniel's getting some serious influence. Moreover, at Daniel's request, now Daniel's asking the king for things. He's going back and negotiating his salary. Okay? He just got an offer, and he's like, mm, I want 10K more. But instead, he says, actually, I just want Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right beside of me. They then become administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Welcome to politics, Daniel. This is a posture and a story of redemptive influence. Redemptive influence. Now, to close, I'm going to wrap up with this. Um, all of you find yourselves in different disciplines throughout the, the work week. And sometimes you might think to yourself, I really don't know what my job and my work has to do with the kingdom of God. And I get that. Let's, let's wrestle through that. But think about vocational stewardship. Foretaste of the kingdom of God, bringing it into your discipline now. God's creational intent and cultivating that where you are now. Here are 10 redemptive influencers in modern day Babylon that I want to just show you guys people that I have listened to lecture or read their content or seen their work, okay? Here are 10, and I want to walk through them briefly. Francis Collins, who is the former director of the National Institute of Health. If you've never heard of Francis Collins, go look him up. He's a brilliant man. He's a Templeton Prize winner. He's written a bunch of, of resources and some books. Um, medical doctor and scientist, brilliant man, Okay. Justin Gibney is a, uh, an attorney and strategist, political strategist in Atlanta, and also the founder, co-founder of the AND campaign. Someone to, to check out there. Makoto Fujimura, as I mentioned earlier, is a Japanese artist and an arts advocate who used to serve on the National Arts Council under um, a couple of different presidential administrations. These are all believers, okay? Redemptive influencers. All right, Rosalind Pickard is a MIT researcher. She serves on staff at MIT, specifically working in artificial intelligence and is doing a lot of really fascinating work in how do we maintain a sense of what it means to be human in an increasingly technologically advanced society. Look Rosalind Pickard up. She's brilliant. Brian Fickert is an economist and is the founder of the Chalmers Center, seeking to um, bring flourishing and development to low-income uh, communities, and he's the author, co-author of the book, When Helping Hurts. We have his book out in the bookstore as well, someone to check out. Um, Jacqueline C. Rivers is a Harvard, Harvard graduate, has a PhD from Harvard. She's a sociologist and is the director of the Seymour Institute uh, and works a lot in public policy. All right. Satyan Davidos is a mathematician at the University of California, San Diego. I've heard him speak and lecture. He is a brilliant mind. Um, Lizeth Rojas Flores is a clinical psychologist and serves at Fuller Seminary and has done a lot of work around immigration and trauma for young kids. Myron Roll is an ex-NFL player and is now a neurosurgeon. What a career, okay? 
Pretty impressive. All right. Also, look at his biceps. Like, I want that brother messing with my brain. I'm just saying, come on, he's jacked. <laughs> anyway, Jessica Kim is a tech entrepreneur and launched a uh, tech company called Ayana Care. All of these people are believers, and they're all redemptive influencers, and none of them are pastors. None of them are worship leaders. They're workers, they're thinkers, they're creatives. And they're influencing society. And you know what else is fascinating about this list of 10? The diversity. Male, female, non-white, non-white, different languages spoken. These are people who are using their vocation as a place for redemptive influence. You are no different. You have been called to steward your vocation in Babylon and to be a redemptive influence, giving a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But we need to look at this blueprint found in Daniel chapter 2 and how he interacts with a very anxious society and culture where the system is breaking down and figure out how do I become a non-anxious presence where I live, work, and play, and how do I offer a glimpse of God's creational intent as well as his future redemptive vision here and now. Your work matters. Settle down, build houses, plant gardens, eat where they produce. May we become a creative minority in this world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for our time together. And we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you that we are scattered across various disciplines and spaces Monday through Friday. Help us have an imagination of what it looks like to cultivate fruit of the kingdom in our workplace, to have a redemptive influence, to be courageous, to be non-compromising, to be non-anxious, to be rooted, to be grounded, to be in prayer in our private spaces with our people to have wisdom and discernment, to ask why questions? And would you shape us to become a people that look more and more like you, that we might become strange again, that we might become weird again, that we might be holy again? Would you sit here in the silence for just a moment?